0: if you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are continuing on in our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's first, which is really a second letter to the Corinthians, and um, we are in verse 14. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 22 this morning. A short passage building on what we talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, you want to go back and listen to the sermon. It may help you as all these things are interconnected. I'll do my best to bring you up to speed on where we've been. Um, Before we do look at God's word this morning, let's pray. And then we'll look at 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are in dire need of your working. We are in the greatest need possible as we enter into the preaching and the hearing of your word, because, Lord, we cannot do this in our own strength. I cannot preach your word in my own power and strength, and your people cannot receive it in their own strength. We pray that your spirit would fall on us. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would speak and that you would speak so loudly and clearly that all in this place would hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and would rise and would follow you. We pray that our souls would be um fed this morning we pray that lord you would stand as the shepherd of israel and that you would feed your sheep with the good things of your word if there are any here this morning who are unbelieving or unregenerate we pray that today would be the day of salvation we pray O god that you would bless what we do for your name's sake that we might know you that we might bring more glory to you that we might grow in our knowledge of the lord and savior jesus christ we pray these things in his name amen 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, my family has a very famous family friend that we see every five years or or so. He's known all throughout the world. He's extremely famous. If I told you his name, you would know who he is. And about... Four or five years ago, I caught back up with our family friend, and he invited uh, my dad and I out to lunch, and we were in Philadelphia. We went out to a a restaurant out in the country, and we sat down, and we were eating with, with our friend, and as we ate with him, I thought about the enormous privilege it was for him to have invited us to come and have this special meal with him at this restaurant. And as we were sitting there, I noticed that others around us recognized who he was and were looking over and talking. You could tell they wanted to come and sit at our table, and that's understandable. It would have been an enormous benefit for them to be able to come and sit at our table and talk with him and have fellowship with him and hear stories that he was telling. But it would have been an enormous insult to him had I said to to our friend, you know what? Thanks for inviting me. I'm going to go sit with these people over here and eat with them. You see, I couldn't sit at two tables. I was either with our friend, eating with him, fellowshipping with him, having table fellowship with our friend, or I was having table fellowship with others. The people looking on were not having table fellowship. They were having their own table fellowship. And you know, it's interesting because we have meals all day long, all week long, all life long. We eat meals. We have meals together. We meet friends for meals. We go out. And we never really stop to think about the powerful illustration meals are for the fellowship that we have with Jesus Christ and one another. The table fellowship. That God has given his saints in Jesus. That the Lord Jesus sits with us in our our worship. That he gathers with us. That we sit with one another. That we are sitting at the same table. After the sermon, we will literally sit and partake together of table fellowship with one another in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a communion. That's why we call it communion. There is a koinonia, a communion, a fellowship in the Savior and with one another. And yet... (laughs) Paul picks up on this illustration as he continues rebuking the Corinthian church for their love of the world and their exercising of supposed rights in going and living like the world. The Corinthians, remember, they were going into temples. All the meat in this society was offered in temples. If you wanted to buy meat, you didn't go to Publix or Kroger. You went to the idol temple. You went to a temple where false worship was happening, and there they would burn the animal sacrifice to pagan deities, and then they would sell off the meat in the marketplace. And so Paul will talk a lot about this. He'll say it's fine to go and buy that meat in the marketplace. An idol's nothing. We know that. It doesn't mean anything. Where else are you going to get meat? Meat is meat. Idols are nothing, but if you go into the sacrifice, if you partake with it, if you sit down on, in the table with them in that service and fellowship and participate in that idolatrous worship, that is sin. And Paul will actually say, you are sitting at a table of demons. Mm. He'll actually say that people who have been redeemed to sit at the table with Jesus were exercising supposed rights and going to sit at a table with demons. Now, For us to understand this passage, you have to know that Paul has set against this backdrop the history of Israel, which we talked about last week, that Israel were redeemed out of Egypt. God showed them mighty, powerful signs and wonders. They saw the supernatural redemption of God, and then they came out in the wilderness, and they committed sexual immorality and idolatry and covetousness, and they complained, and they bickered because they were unregenerate, and they didn't drink from the rock. God said, here's a table. Here's a rock in the wilderness water gushed out of that rock paul says that rock was christ but israel didn't care they didn't care about sitting at the table with jesus they didn't care about having a table for themselves in the wilderness and if you turn back in your bibles to deuteronomy 32 you'll actually see that paul has this history of israel still in mind in this section and and he's looking at what we call the song of moses the song of Moses, when, when I used to read this as a young Christian, I was like, that's not a song I want to sing. It's not a happy song. I can tell you that much. It's not it's not a happy, clappy song. It's a song about rebellion and judgment. Song of Moses. And notice what Moses says in verse four. The rock. Remember, Paul's told us that rock was Christ. The rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. Israel, who's just been redeemed. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children. They are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. But listen, as God had blessed them and had given them these abundant External blessings that should have showed them the redemption in Christ. Notice verse 16. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods they had never known. To new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. And you forgot the God who gave you birth. You can see how Paul is tying together Deuteronomy 32 in 1 Corinthians 10. And he's telling the New Testament church, you know what? You can be just like Israel. We can be just like Israel. Israel was the church. They had a type of baptism. They had a type of the Lord's Supper. They were trusting in those things. They were saying to Paul, Paul... We're in. We're baptized. We've got the Lord's Supper. We're good. What are you talking about? And Paul says, let me remind you that when you go and you sacrifice to other gods and you eat the meat being offered in worship and you put yourself in these idolatrous places, you are sitting at tables with demons. Behind all of those false gods in the Old Testament that are nothing, they don't exist, there are real demons that do exist. Now, in the reform world, we don't talk about demons a lot. We don't talk about Satan a lot, probably to our shame probably because we've overreacted to abuses. The Apostle Paul tells us in false worship and idolatry, there are demons behind those gods. And what we need to understand to really get anything out of this for us is that Paul is contrasting especially the idea of sacrifice to these other gods with the sacrifice of Jesus. Notice that Paul says here, Notice that he says in verse 15, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourself the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then notice what he says in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. He reminds them of Israel at his present day who were still sacrificing post the sacrifice of Jesus. And he was saying every time they continue to sacrifice bulls and goats and lambs, they are participating in that sacrifice. That's idolatry. They are, there is a union between the people and the sacrifice and the demons that lay behind it. There is a union. There's a demonic union and there's a union with believers with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is either a union with demonic influences and people who worship other gods, so don't think The Exorcist, don't think of crazy Hollywood movies, think of mere sitting and eating as union. Mere sitting and eating in idolatrous places with idolatrous people is union with them. I was for a moment united with our family friend at that table. I was united. We were having fellowship. We were there together purposefully. We were joined together in table fellowship. The Corinthians were being joined together in idolatrous worship. Now, Paul's going to do three things. First, he's going to tell them, uh, he's going to command them to flee idolatry there in verse 15. Sorry, verse 14. Then he's going to explain the communion they have with Christ and one another. And then he's going to give them a call to trust in God's strength. So notice there in verse 14, Paul has obviously continuing on with what he said. He says, therefore, my beloved flee from idolatry. Now, the interesting thing here is that Paul has only used the word flee one other time in the book, and that was flee sexual immorality. Now he's going to say flee idolatry. He's dealt with sexual immorality. Now he's dealing with idolatry. The remedy to sexual immorality is flee. Turn from it. Run from it. Flee it. The remedy to idolatry is turn from it. Run from it. Flee from it. Don't get as close to it as you can. Don't play with sin. Don't lead up to the point where you're going to fall into sexual immorality. Flee from it. Go as far away. Now it's interesting. I often tell you. You need to get as close to unbelievers as possible to win them to Jesus, but you need to get as far away from sin as possible to keep yourself from idolatry and sexual immorality. You need to get as close as you can to the unbelieving world to win people to Jesus, and you need to get as far from the sin of the unbelieving world as possible. That seems like a dichotomy, false dichotomy. It's not. Stay a thousand miles from sin, get as near as you can to people to win them to Jesus. And Paul says all that in this book. And remember, it's interesting when Paul is correcting the sexual immorality and the Corinthians were going to the temples and they were sleeping with these prostitutes. And um, we've said they were having communal sex and they they were, in the words of one guy, a church gone wild. They were a church gone wild. They were out of control. And Paul said to them, when they joined themselves to an adulteress, to a harlot or a prostitute, they became one flesh with them. There was a union. Paul had contrasted that. Paul said, flee from that. Flee from any kind of union with wickedness. Now he tells the Corinthians in the context of idolatry, flee. Flee from idolatry. You know, it's interesting. I have a professor, a very well-known professor, who... One day in class said, you know, the person who won't turn from sin but complains about constantly falling into sin is like the guy standing out in the rain saying, man, I wish I was dry, when all he has to do is flee from sin. He has power in Christ. He just steps inside and he's dry. That it takes purpose and decisiveness and action on our part to flee. It doesn't just happen. The Christian life is not let go and let God. God. It's not. I don't care how pious that sounds. If you let go, you're going to let go into idolatry. If you let go, you're going to let go into sexual immorality. The Christian life is trust Christ and flee. Trust Christ and flee. It's not let go and let God. It's trust Christ and flee. Now, I think this is a hard passage for us because there's this whole concept of sacrifice over this passage. And, you know, Paul will say the Jews, modern day, they sacrifice still their participants of demon worship. The pagans, they were sacrificing to their gods, but we have the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's hard for us because in our culture, we don't have any sacrificial system, except Rome says they sacrifice Jesus in the mass. That's idolatry. Clearly, Paul debunks that here. They say it's the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus was sacrificed once, So I don't know of any in our culture, any other sacrificial system other than Rome happening. But what I do know is that we sacrifice when we give our time and money to things that are not in accord with the Jesus who brings us into table fellowship. When we give our time and money to things, we are sacrificing. Now. It could be sports. That's huge in the in the South, especially SEC football. It's wonderful football. It's amazing. I told somebody today I don't have I don't have a favorite SEC team, so I'm good. You guys can't rail on me, but SEC football is amazing. And when I listen to the packed crowds cheering, I think that's worship. That's worship. There's a lot of idolatry in SEC football. Um, it could be idolatry in hobbies. It could be idolatry in Things that we want and what we spend our affection on in time and whatever you give yourself to, whatever you bow down to with time and money, that's your God. Whatever you prostrate yourself to. I have a friend who says if a man is enslaved to pornography, he says to, to, to brothers who he's trying to help that won't kick it. He says, why don't you just get down and just bow down to that computer and say, oh, computer, satisfy me. Oh, computer, I worship you. I worship the filth that's on you. That's idolatry. We bow. We sacrifice time and energy. We can participate in all kinds of things that are idolatry. Now, I know we're a little bit freer than the Corinthians not to worry about going into some pagan temple here in North America. If you lived in other cultures, India, Japan, the Middle East, It would be wrong for you. It would be wrong for you to go into a Muslim mosque and to pray with Muslims when the imam calls in the name of Jesus. That would be wrong. You do not have freedom to do that. You would be participating with them in demon worship. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying we must examine our hearts and say, where are their idols? Tim Keller, and I think very helpfully, says, idols are often good things that we make ultimate things. I would change that even and say an idol is any created thing or motive that we say you are here to serve me and satisfy me. I give you my life. Mm -hmm. Idolatry. Idolatry is not just something Israel did. It's not just something the Corinthians were engaged in. We live in a very idolatrous country. I said last week, it is interesting that when Israel first practiced idolatry, what did they do it with? Money, gold. They take gold, they make a calf. It's not about the calf. It's not about the actual God from Egypt that they were saying, they were setting up there at the foot of the mountain. They were worshiping money. They were worshiping possessions, tangible things that have value, saying you are our God. Now, you may be sitting there and you may think, I'd never do that. No, you would. You would. Two million people that just got redeemed did that. Two million. That's a big church. Every time I console myself about not having a megachurch, I just remember Moses and two million Israelites. And they're worshiping a golden calf at the foot of the mountain. I'm not sure I want a megachurch. Um, but, but the sober reality is that we all, we all have a propensity to idolatry. Who do you spend time with? Who do you spend time with? Is the majority of your life spent with believers, fellowshipping, laboring together for the kingdom, or is it spent with the world? Now, there are hundreds of thousands of people that profess faith in Jesus. And six and a half days out of seven, they live in the world with people in the world. That's their best friends. That's their society. That's their table. And then for half a day on Sunday, they come together and they fellowship with God's people as if they are one of them. And that's what Paul is saying, that... The Corinthians, actually, he'll come to this later, and it's very complicated, I know. I know this book is complicated, but he'll actually say later that there were some who were breaking off from others and eating the Lord's Supper ahead of them, that they were living their lives out here in idolatrous temples, living out in the world, and then coming to church and partaking of the supper with other believers when they had no real table fellowship with those believers. And that it was... uh, it was a, a, a division. They wanted to sit at one table. They wanted to sit at the other table. They wanted to have their life divided. It, it reminds me so much of what Jesus says. There's only one thing that makes Jesus want to throw up, and that's lukewarmness. Jesus says, Jesus says he will spew out of his mouth, vomit out of his mouth, lukewarm people. That's what the Corinthians had become. And Paul says... To them, Listen, he's reminded them, you've been redeemed, you've been bought with a price, you're not your own. You belong to another, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. Think about what Jesus has done. You have the bread, you have the wine, you have these symbols of his body and his blood that you are a participant in. Why would you throw that away and squander that? Why would you leave the table with the best person in the room to go sit at a table with people that don't care about you? And that really should want to sit at this table. And Paul is saying, flee. Flee idolatry. I want to challenge you this morning to examine your life. Say, where are there idols? Because I know there are in all our lives. Where is my life, a life of seeking to live at two tables, and flee from that? And flee from that. I challenge myself with that. I challenge you with that. Paul. The Holy Spirit challenges you with that. And so notice that as Paul continues now, now he's going to explain the benefit because it's not enough to say flee. It's not enough to say stop sinning. It's not, that's not, nobody's ever changed in the history of the world by somebody saying stop doing that ever. Paul is now going to hold out again the benefits of what they have in communion with Christ and one another. Notice what he says. I mean, this is amazing to me. Here are people going into pagan temples and Paul says, listen, you've been redeemed. Paul brings it back to the gospel again. Notice, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There is one bread. We who are many are one body. We all partake of one bread. Now what Paul is doing, interestingly, he's giving you through the symbolism of the supper, a whole theology of union with Christ and one another, that the believer's life is lived mystically united to the Jesus who is reigning and to believers who are united to him by faith. So that when we sit down at this table, we are actually partaking together. We are partaking together. That's why we wait for one another. The one cup, the one loaf, gathers many people and makes them one body. The broken body, the shed blood of Jesus, is what gathers together all his people in mystical union. Um, There are many rich hymns that talk about the the communion of the saints and the fellowship. You know, heaven, heaven is not just you and Jesus. Heaven is a world of believers gathered around the lamb that was slain saying, you are worthy. You are worthy, you are worthy, for you were slain. You have redeemed us to God from your blood. Out of every tongue and tribe and nation and language, you have made us kings and priests to our God. I love Edward Donnelly, one of my favorite preacher-theologians, says, if there was just one saint, one for whom Christ had died and, and one whom God has chosen in Christ, just one saint missing from heaven, heaven would not be heaven." You see what Donley's doing is he's looking at the end of the story and he's saying this is just a tiny symbolic picture of what's to come what we do every Lord's Day and throughout the week gathering together when we celebrate the supper together we are saying I am united with the Savior with these beloved believers notice what Paul calls them in verse 10 how can Paul Paul's like Paul wants to tell this church how horrible they are. I mean, Paul's basically saying, you are messed up. But notice what he calls them in verse 14. He says, my beloved, my beloved, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That Paul sees this beautiful union. Sinclair Ferguson talks about the Lord's Supper, and he says that one of the things he loves about North America that he doesn't have anywhere else in the world is that there's a rehearsal dinner the day before the wedding, and... The anticipation and the preparation the excitement that the rehearsal dinner brings he says the Lord's Supper is a rehearsal dinner the Lord's Supper is a rehearsal dinner for the great wedding day of the Lamb that we anticipate together now when you think about that when you think about what Paul says that we have this mystical communion with Christ and with his people why would we want to sit at any other table that's that's the force of this If you, any of you, if I told you who my friend was and you had been there and I had invited you over, you would have, you would have pushed all the other tables out of your mind and you would have fled to the table we were sitting at to have that opportunity for fellowship with someone who was great. Now, Jesus, we have God, we have God manifest in the flesh. We have the savior, the redeemer of the world, the infinite creator of all things. And he says, come sit at my table. Why would we want to go anywhere else? Why would we want to be in the world? I understand the pull of the world. I understand the passing pleasures of sin. I understand what it is to want to turn back to what we've been redeemed out of. Our hearts have that. Our hearts all have a pull to the world. One of my favorite preachers, Ian Hamilton, often says, whenever a Christian says, sin has no pleasure to me, he says, that man doesn't know his heart. Sin has pleasure, but Christ is an infinite creator. Christ is an infinite redeemer. Christ says, come, I'll give you the best seat in the house. I give you the best table, the best food. I give you the best fellowship. I give you the best party you could have. I mean, how many of you have left a party and said, that was an awesome party? The fellowship was perfect. The atmosphere was perfect. The food was perfect. That's the gospel, That's what Jesus does for his people. That's the table fellowship. It's the best. He's the best chef in the world. He gives us his his blood. He gives us his body. We participate in it. We drink. We drink deeply. We are satisfied in Jesus. And so Paul says to them, listen, don't you know that? Don't you know that you have the cup of the Lord Then he says, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? There is an impossibility, as I've mentioned, for you to live in two spheres. It's an impossibility. You know, I, before I was converted, would go to church often, knew the truth, knew more truth than probably a lot of you in my mind. Um, I lived in the world. 99.9% of the time, I went to church on Sunday. I thought somehow I was eating from two tables, but really I was only eating from one. It's impossible. It's impossible for you to participate in the body of blood of Jesus and to go to the world, and it's impossible for you to change yourself. Notice verse 22, a very difficult verse. Paul says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he now remember, this is a group of people that thought they were strong Christians. They thought they were wise. They thought they had a lot of knowledge. They thought they had all the freedom that they could go anywhere, that they were, they were, um, they were protected and shielded from falling into sin. That's why Paul says in the previous verses, he who thinks he stand, let, let him take heed lest he fall. They thought they were strong. And notice what he says. He says, are we stronger than he, speaking of the Lord? I think Paul is reflecting on Israel again. In the wilderness, and the one thing that Israel lacked, they only lacked one thing. They lacked faith in the God who said he had all strength and power, who could sustain them, who could provide for them, who could protect them. That's the only thing Israel lacked in the wilderness, was confidence that God was able. Remember all those verses where Israel's complaining and the Lord says, is the Lord's arm shortened that it cannot save? Is the Lord's arm short? And what he's saying is, does God have any impossibilities of providing? I thought about this this week. You know, um, our God is infinite. Isaiah 40. Um, he holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. Kids, God doesn't have a hand. He doesn't have a hand. That's just language we use. But he holds the waters of the earth in the hollows of the, his hand. He measures heaven with a span. He calculates the dust of the earth. In a measure. I want you to think about that. God knows how much dust there is. He calculates the dust of the earth in a measure. Who's ever taught the Lord, Isaiah says? Who's ever been his counselor? Who's ever taught him anything that that it should be repaid him? You see, God is so powerful that God lacks nothing. God can do anything. Nothing's hard for him. He doesn't get tired. God doesn't ever wear out. We wear out. He doesn't wear out. God is so powerful that whatever we need, I was thinking about this. We like to say for for a really wealthy person to give us something, well, it's pocket change to them. It's not even pocket change for God. Remember the, the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus and she wants him to heal his daughter and he keeps pushing her away and he's like, you know, not answering her, go, go, go. And then she's finally like, Lord, this would just be like crumbs for you to heal my daughter. It'd be like crumbs. I think Paul's saying, for you to get this, to flee idolatry, to value the fellowship that you have with Jesus and believers, is like crumbs for God. Are you stronger than him? You think you stand in your own strength? You don't think you need God to sustain you and keep you and protect you from idolatry? We don't think we need him to provide for us and keep us and heal us. We're going to fall. But we have a God who is a rock. We have a God who is a rock. It's one of God's favorite names for himself. He's a rock. He's a fortress. He's a strong tower. He is a God who provides and keeps and protects. And you know what? He's done everything at Calvary to bring you to himself. He has shed his blood. He has breathed his last. He has poured out his soul unto death so that you might sit with him and be redeemed, and have fellowship, and have communion with him. Now, we're going to sit at this table in a minute, and the last thing we need to do is to take this carelessly or flippantly, or to just say, oh again, Lord's Supper again, you are sitting down with the Redeemer, and you are sitting down with those that have been redeemed by him. This is the table we sit at. You realize, we sit in the best table, Every day of our life, we sit at the best table with the Lord Jesus Christ and with believers. That's the privileges you have. If that doesn't make you want to flee from idolatry, nothing will. If the thought of leaving this table and leaving that fellowship doesn't make you want to flee from idolatry, nothing's going to. Um, If you don't know Christ... If you've never repented of sin, if you've never embraced his sacrifice, if you don't know what it is to have the blood and the body, if you don't know what it is to have Jesus Christ and his sufferings, come to him. You know, the difference between Jesus and my famous friend is that my famous friend would not invite anybody else to that table. There is no way that's happening. He's way too self-aggrandizing. He wants his friends there and just his friends. Jesus spreads a feast for men and he says, come. Without money, without price, buy wine, buy milk. The calf has been killed. The wine has been mixed. He says, come to me. Come to me. Sit, eat, feed, live. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Our God, how desperately we need our souls to know these truths. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have brought us to the best table, that your banner over us is love, that you have given us your flesh for the life of our souls. We thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your shed blood. We pray that you would forgive us for the many times that we have turned to idolatrous ways and idolatrous people to be united in things that we have been redeemed out of. Lord Jesus, make us all to see the greatness of redemption and the greatness of you sitting down and dining with us and us dining with one another. We pray that you would satisfy our souls this morning. We pray that you would draw near to us, Lord Jesus. As we draw near to you, we pray in your name. Amen.